Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 830 on Thursday, February 29th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi's House of Representatives pass a bill to expand Medicaid for the state's working poor. Then a new report from the U.S. Department of Justice alleges Mississippi Department of Corrections is violating the constitutional rights of inmates. Plus, we talk with a woman who lived in the home of Megar Evers following his assassination in 1963 at the request of his wife, Merle Evers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. In a landmark vote by the Mississippi House, lawmakers advance a bill, House Bill 1725, that would open Medicaid benefits to the working poor. By a vote of 96 yeas, 20 nays, the bill passes. The measure becomes law and is approved by the federal government. It would require these new beneficiaries to hold a job for at least 20 hours a week and pay premiums. The income cap for the program would be 138 percent above the federal poverty level, roughly $20,000 for an individual. Here's Republican House Speaker Jason White talking with reporters following Wednesday's vote. The House of Representatives approach called Healthy Mississippi Works, will provide real, affordable solutions for our state's hardworking, low-income population. Healthy Mississippi Works, which passed off the floor today by a large vote margin, will cover the age group of 19 to 64, earning up to 138% of the federal poverty level and require employment for at least 20 hours a week in a position where health insurance is not provided or alternatively, the individual must be enrolled full-time in school or a workforce training program. The program will come at a minimal to no cost to the state with the federal government providing 90% of the funding and the remaining 10% will come from Mississippi's managed care organizations through a tax. We have also added a four-year repealer to this legislation, which essentially makes this a pilot program that will exist for four years at little or no cost to the state and will allow us to collect true statistics on Mississippians and compile information on these beneficiaries and allow the legislature to make informed decisions and changes if needed or ultimately end the program if it is truly found to be unsuccessful. 
The bill passed the House with a veto-proof vote of 98 to 20. But the measure still has several major hurdles. Governor Tate Reeves has been vocal against the bill, calling it straight Obamacare Medicaid expansion. He could veto the legislation and require that lawmakers return it as late as next year. But legislators in the Senate are also working on a bill that would address Medicaid expansion. The measure remains a placeholder, though, and is expected to be amended with details in the coming days. Speaker White says their bill does have a backup plan in case that waiver is not granted by the federal government, which has been turned down. That request has been turned down by states in the past. Our desire is to get this right. If the work requirement waiver is not approved by the Center for Medicaid Services before September 30th, 2024, this year, then Medicaid will cover these individuals through a state plan amendment that provides the conditions as outlined in the waiver as part of the contractual requirements of the managed care organizations that will be managing these individuals' health care. Healthy Mississippi Works will help with our incredibly low labor participation rate, which is hovering at 50%, incentivizing work for the unemployed. Currently, 40 states now have coverage through the Affordable Care Act for their low-income workforce. If we do not pursue health care options for our people, Mississippi will fall behind. Providing affordable access to health care is not only compassionate, but it is a smart investment in our workforce. In the House of Representatives, we are committed to not only improving health care outcomes in our state, but bolstering an entire segment of our workforce. We will continue to develop and introduce health care policies that will lead to a healthier Mississippi. I would like to acknowledge the support of my House colleagues today in this large vote total, and I would also like to specifically acknowledge my House Republican colleagues for their strong support on an issue we have neglected for so long to, as we try to address health care solutions for working Mississippians. As this bill is transmitted to the Senate for their consideration, I want to acknowledge that they, too, are drafting legislation that will provide health care accessibility options. With the passage of House Bill 1725 today, we have sent them a conservative plan that addresses our shared goal to provide health care coverage for hardworking, low-income Mississippians. I look forward to working with the Senate on this issue. Regarding the governor's objection to the bill, White says he still supports Tate Reeves as the state's leader. And he says it is possible to support the governor while also wanting a workable solution to health care in Mississippi. The bill's co-author, House Republican Missy McGee of Hattiesburg, says this measure could be life-changing for low-income workers who just can't afford quality private insurance. The passage of House Bill 1725 stands as a victory for working Mississippians who are simply trying to carve out a life for themselves and their families. Today we saw the best of our state show up. Today we saw leaders leaning in to that shared value of choosing to act when they they see friends and neighbors in need. We know there is still much work to be done as this bill moves to the Senate Moving beyond a decade of simply saying no and finding a workable solution to health access takes effort, but it's a task I believe the lawmakers of both parties in both chambers are up for. I'm very grateful to Speaker White for making this issue a top priority and to all of the minds that helped craft this legislation. 
I'm thankful for the strong majorities in both parties that showed courage in voting yes, and we recognize the many voices who championed this issue long before today. But most importantly, I'm excited about the hundreds of thousands of working Mississippians, both now and in the future, who will have a way forward toward a better, healthier quality of life. House Democrats have been working on passing Medicaid expansion for years, voting in favor of HB 1725. House Minority Leader Robert Johnson of Natchez says he's excited to see this measure move forward, even if it doesn't reach his goal of full Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. You know, last time I felt this good, I cried because we changed the flag in the state of Mississippi. But today is a great day. For working Mississippians, it is a great day for health care and for the people of the state of Mississippi. And, you know, to add emphasis, that was a 90, what is it, 96 to 20? 96 people in the House of Representatives says it's finally time that we did something to help people and to promote small businesses, health insurance, and working people who've been struggling for years. So I think it's a great day. The legislation now advances to the Senate, but that chamber is not expected to take up the measure until after they finalize their own Medicaid bill. Next, three Mississippi prisons are said to violate the 8th and 14th Amendment rights of inmates in a new report from the U.S. Department of Justice. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. For Moments in Black History, we salute Walter Payton. Born in Columbia, Mississippi, he played football as a Jackson State Tiger and a Chicago Bear, a nine-time Pro Bowl selection and widely regarded as one of the greatest football players of all time. Sweetness had the NFL's Man of the Year Award named after him, the Walter Payton Award. This has been an MPB Moment in Black History. If you aren't near a radio, you can still listen to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. You can download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone or listen online at mpbonline.org. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB Public Media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The U.S. Department of Justice is pointing to three Mississippi prisons they say violate the 8th and 14th Amendment rights of inmates. The report lists the Central Mississippi Correctional Facility in Rankin County, South Mississippi Correctional Institution in Green County, and Wilkinson County Correctional Facility. U.S. Assistant Attorney General Christine Clark says these issues endanger the lives of inmates. Our investigation uncovered chronic systemic deficiencies that create and perpetuate violent and unsafe environments for people incarcerated at these three facilities. Specifically, we found that these facilities violate the constitutional rights of people incarcerated there in two principal ways. First, the facilities fail to protect incarcerated people from violence. The 
inadequate supervision of the incarcerated population, uncontrolled flow of contraband, deficient investigation of incidents resulting in serious harm, and failure to fix poor living conditions have led to unchecked violence. Short staffing has also allowed gangs to amass control and exert improper influence, directing everything from bed assignments in housing units to traffic in contraband. A 2022 report by DOJ found similar issues at the Mississippi State Penitentiary at Parchment. Clark says that investigation helped spark this deeper dive into other Mississippi prisons operated by the State Department of Corrections. Across all four of the Mississippi prisons we have investigated, we found unacceptable levels of violence. And at the three prisons that rely on restrictive housing, We found that incarcerated people were subject to such confinement for prolonged periods under dangerous conditions. The uh, constitutional violence are systemic and longstanding. And I want to highlight a few key aspects of today's report. First, violence is pervasive at all three facilities. During one period, Central Mississippi averaged one assault or fight between incarcerated people every other day. Violence extends to the restrictive housing units where people are locked down in their cells 23 or more hours per day. We heard gangs described as, quote, a government, end quote, within the prisons. And in many ways, this accurately described their influence. Gangs control multiple aspects of day-to-day life, including access to phones, showers, and bed assignments, and they control the contraband trade. We found that gangs exert pressures on staff working in the prisons, with some staff even joining in trafficking of contraband. All three facilities are severely understaffed. In fact, vacancy rates range from 30 to 50 percent. Short staffing is longstanding and it is dangerous. Large housing units with hundreds of people go unsupervised for extended periods, leaving those people vulnerable to attack and an emergency response that is often tardy and ineffective. Clark also shares several stories from inmates and the conditions they have lived through. We learned about one incident where poor door security and lack of supervision allowed multiple incarcerated men to enter a female housing unit at Central Mississippi. They stayed and engaged in sexual activity for an extended period. Although the sexual activity was reportedly consensual, the other women in the unit felt unsafe and were at risk of harm. At Wilkinson, an incarcerated person died from an altercation with a cellmate that involved a 12-inch metal shank. No staff were supervising that unit the night of the incident, and officers failed to conduct any rounds to count the inmates. We also found rampant sexual violence across the three facilities. In South Mississippi, for example, an individual told us that he was raped at knife point in a shower. 
multiple gang members waited outside the shower area while he was assaulted to prevent others from interceding. He also reported that he had been previously assaulted at another Mississippi prison and denied protective custody. We found that while the facilities have adopted some reforms to improve conditions, they have not been sufficient given the severity and egregiousness of the issues. The minimum remedial measures we identify in our report are a starting point for the state and the Mississippi Department of Corrections to create and implement long-lasting reforms in the state's prisons. In a statement, the Department of Corrections responded to the Justice Department's findings, saying over the past four years, MDOC has worked tirelessly to increase staff through additional compensation, the development of career ladders, streamlining the hiring process and eliminating special and implementing rather special duty pay. They go on to say while they disagree with the findings, they will work with the DOJ to identify possible solutions. Coming up, we talk with a woman who helped take care of Megar Evers' home in the wake of his 1963 assassination by the request of his wife, Merle Evers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. Please join me and my colleagues for the Mississippi Arts Hour, where we have in-depth conversations with different creative Mississippians. That's the Mississippi Arts Hour, Sundays at 5 on Think Radio, or download it as a podcast. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The woman who helped care for the home of Megar Evers following his assassination is sharing her story. When Evers was assassinated outside of his home in 1963, his family chose to stay for several years, but when his wife, Merle Evers, chose to move, she needed someone they could trust to look after the house. Well, Sandra McCall, a Jackson native, now works for the office of 2nd District Congressman Benny Thompson, and she talks about this issue. She says she was just 13 years old when Megar Evers was assassinated. Later, she lived in the house for four years before it was donated to Tougaloo College for historical preservation. Mrs. Evers and my mother were friends. When I got a divorce and I was here at my mother's house and they were talking on the phone, and she said, uh, is that Sandra? Let me talk to her. And she said, baby, will you go over to my house and stay till I can decide what I would like to do with that? And I told her, yes. She said, if you could just go over there and stay. So I stayed four years until she decided. Uh, I think she rent- she rented it out one other year. And the reason why I left is because my mother passed and I moved back in the home house. And uh, I think we, she rented it out one year after that, and then she donated it to Tukulu. So when you moved into the home, how old were you then? You know, I can't say. I, I, I can't remember. It was in the 80s, and I'm 74 years old. So I was very young, you know, probably uh, in, in my uh, 30s or, or, or late 20s or 30s or something like that. Did you have any fear of staying there? Yes. I, I would say for a week I didn't sleep. 
And it was because, I guess, by knowing the family, knowing what happened, and I saw the bullet hole when I first when we were moving in. So for a week, I just stayed in the living room on the couch and just dozed. I mean, I didn't sleep at all. And I don't know, uh, uh, and I know this may sound kind of crazy. I kept saying to myself, uh, what, if, what if they come back and I've got a child here? You know what I'm saying? And so uh, it was hard for me to sleep for about a week, and then I got used to it. And I should say that um, Megger Evers was assassinated in his driveway after he had come home. What was that whole experience like for you hearing that he had been killed? Because you, your mother and Merle Evers were such good friends. Well, it was awful. At 13, you don't quite understand, but you do understand because my family was involved with civil rights movement. We had uh, calls uh, coming to our house where they were threatening uh, our family and everything else. So that night when my mother got the call, of course, we all woke up. And by being a young child, I was not as involved with what was going on. But with all the adults around me, I could see the sadness. So it made me feel uh, I've got to follow in my mother's footsteps. So during the summer months of high school, I worked in recruiting people to register to vote. My brother and I did. In fact, uh, I worked in the NAACP office. And uh, downstairs, we when they would get the people to register, I would be the one to type up their uh, voter registration and their information. And we did that a couple of summer, summers. The last summer, um, my brother was on the courthouse steps asking our people to, to register to vote. And the um, sheriff or the police, I can't remember what, called the NAACP office and said, you all have 15 minutes to come get him or we're going to kill him. And and they ran, ran to uh, the rush to get him and uh, to make sure that, that he was okay and brought him back. So even though I knew what was going on, I was fearful when I was 13 when Mr. Evers was, was killed. I continued and, and, and doing what I thought that I needed to do. Did your parents ever talk to you about the movement? My mother, more so than anything, because she was so involved with the NAACP. We were, you know, we were taught the the minute that we turned uh, 18 that we had to register to vote. My mother talked to us about what we needed to do. Uh, My father was not as involved, but he wanted to make sure that we were registered voters. And would it be correct to assume that you are still involved? Yes. In fact, I, uh, I, I like I say, uh, I'm with the Democratic Party. I am the campaign chair for the entire state of Mississippi. When you look back to the civil rights movement up to today, what stands out for you? I think we probably have made some strides. I think we have. And I know that there's some things that that we've made strides in or whatever. But I also know that in the past eight years or so, those particular things uh, that maybe it was uh, 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 we believe that things were better for us. 
But in this day and time, I'm not so sure because of the environment of the world, the environment uh, in Washington, and the environment here in Mississippi. Are you still in touch with the Evers family? I saw Rena um, the other night when Joy Reed was here. That's Megger Evers' daughter. Yes. Uh, Mrs. Evers, when she was here for her 90th birthday, uh, I went to the event that uh, that uh, that they had for her. Went to the events and uh, and she remember. Uh, but Rena told me that before uh, that, before the event, she said, "Mom is going to be at the house at a certain day." So I got a chance to go over and just sit and talk with her uh, 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 for a while without her being in the spotlight or the cameras and all. And so we got a chance to talk. And take a picture. Okay. And when you talked about the initial fear of staying at the Evers home, did you stay because you felt like you had to? No, no. I didn't stay because I felt like I had to. I was divorced. I moved out from my mama. I I was my mother. I was raising my child. And I needed to be on my own. I was involved with PTA. I was involved with my child. My 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 mother was involved with with us and everything. I didn't stay because I wanted, but I had to stay. I stayed because I wanted to stay. All right. Well, Sandra McCall, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. We really appreciate your okay, um, spotlighting appreciate this. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you. The home is now a registered landmark with the National Park Service. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.